This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Extra by Yi Yun Lee, which was published in The New Yorker in December of 2003. Granny Lynn gasps. She has never had a husband in her life, and the prospect of a dead husband frightens her. Yet Auntie Wong makes the decision for her right then and there, between two fish stands, and in a short time, she finds Granny Lin a match. The story was chosen by Sarah Swan Yen Bynum, who's the author of two novels, Miss Hempel Chronicles and Madeline is Sleeping, which was a finalist for the National Book Award in 2004. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Deborah. So Extra, it was, it was the first story by Ian Lee that was published in The New Yorker back in 2003, and I believe it was only the second story that she'd published anywhere. Was it the first piece of hers that you read? It was, it was, and I remember feeling excitement both because of the work itself and also because we had just missed each other at Iowa, but I had already sort of heard about this wonderful writer who was coming out of the program. What impression did the story make on you when you read it? The story felt very poignant to me because the character of Granny Lynn, and I imagine the story is taking place somewhere in the 90s, maybe the mid-90s or so. <laughs> the character of Granny Lynn is around the same age as my own mother. Um, and my mother left China in 1949. And I was struck when I was reading the story of, oh, if my mother had stayed, what might her life had lo- looked like? And, <laughs> and in some ways this story offered a window into what another life, another self might have looked like for my mother. The other thing I was struck by when I first read it, I just loved the unexpectedness of this love story. And I loved how the story was asking us to reimagine or redefine the whole notion of a love story. Mm -hmm. And going back to it 14 years later... Has it changed for you? Do you do you read it differently having read everything she's she's written since? Yes. I think reading this within the context of all of the other wonderful stories that have followed, seeing it as part of her sort of body of work, one of the things that that I'm struck by is how her work so beautifully captures China at this moment of enormous change, but we almost don't register that because we're so caught up in the moment-by-moment experience of her characters. But now that I've read, you know, both of her story collections and the new work that she's been publishing, the larger mosaic comes into focus of how deftly she is documenting the effects of these enormous economic shifts that are happening, both for people living in China, but also for Chinese living in the diaspora. But, you know, I have to say, when I first read the story, I was just so charmed by the character of Granny Lin. And that was only sort of in retrospect reading in hindsight, that I'm thinking about, wow, how subtly and how 
uh, astutely, she's also at the same time showing us a snapshot of what is happening at this moment historically in China. Right. On a non-Chinese note, Yian often talks about William Trevor as her her, her greatest (gasps) literary influence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you feel any of his reach in this story? Actually, you know, the writer I was really thinking of when I was reading this is actually Flaubert um, (laughs) because there was these beautiful echoes in this story for me of Flaubert's long story, A Simple Heart. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, even though Trevor and his interest in an older, quieter character, Mm -hmm. strangely enough, it was Flaubert who was most present for me as I was reading this one, as I was thinking about Felicite and and her unlikely love story, mm-hmm. um, seemed in some ways to uh, mirror Granny Lynn's love story. And it is in a way for, for Granny Lynn a, a sentimental education. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Good, well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Sarah Swenyan Bynum reading Extra by Yian Li. Extra Granny Lin walks down the street on a November afternoon with a stainless steel lunch pail in her hand. Inside the lunch pail is an official certificate from her working unit. Hereby we confirm Conrad Lin May is honorably retired from the Beijing Red Star Garment Factory, the certificate says in bright gold characters. It does not say that the Red Star Garment Factory has gone bankrupt, or that, being honorably retired, Granny Lin will not receive her pension. Of course it does not provide such information, for these facts are simply not true. Bankrupt is the wrong word for a state-owned industry. Internal reorganization is what has been kindly omitted from the certificate. And, mind this, Granny Lynn's pension is being withheld only temporarily. For how long, the factory has no further information to offer. There is always a road when you get into the mountain, Auntie Wang, Granny Lynn's neighbor, says to her upon being informed of Granny Lynn's situation. And there is a Toyota wherever there is a road. The second line of the Toyota commercial slips out before Granny Lynn realizes it. There you go, Granny Lynn. I know you are an optimistic person. Stay positive and you will find your Toyota. But where on earth can she find a way to replenish her dwindling savings? For a few days, Granny Lynn adds, subtracts, and divides, and she decides that her savings will run out in a year. In two years, if she can skip a meal here and there, go to bed right after sunset, and stay bundled up so that she does not have to feed the insatiable stove extra coal through the long winter of northern China. Don't worry, Auntie Wang says the next time they meet at the market, looking down at the single radish Granny Lin has bought for her dinner, as plump as a Buddha dwelling between her two palms. You can always find someone and get married. Get married? Granny Lynn says and blushes. 
Don't be so conservative, Granny Lin, Auntie Wong says. How old are you? Fifty-one. You're even younger than I am. I'm fifty-eight, but I'm not as old-fashioned as you. You know what? Young people no longer have a monopoly on marriage. Don't make me a clown, Granny Lin says. I'm serious, Granny Lin. There are so many old widowers in the city. I'm sure there are rich and sick ones who need someone to take care of them. You mean I can find a caretaker's position for old people? Granny Lin asks. Auntie Wong sighs and pokes Granny Lin's forehead with a finger. Use your brain. Not a caretaker, but a wife. That way, you can at least inherit some cash when your husband dies. Granny Lin gasps. She has never had a husband in her life, and the prospect of a dead husband frightens her. Yet Auntie Wong makes the decision for her right then and there, between two fish stands, and in a short time, she finds Granny Lin a match. 76. High blood pressure and diabetes. Wife just died. Living alone in a three-bedroom flat. Pension, 2,000 yuan a month. Both sons married and earning good money in the government, Auntie Wong says, and is surprised that Granny Lin remains unimpressed. Come on, Granny Lin, where else will you find such a good husband? The old man will die in no time, and the sons are so rich they won't mind sparing some of his savings for you. Let me tell you, this is the most eligible family, as far as I know. Their door sill has been worn away by the feet of the matchmakers. But of all the possible wives, they are interested only in you. Why? Because you have never married and you have no children. By the way, Granny Lynn, how come you aren't married? You never told us the reason. Granny Lynn opens and then closes her mouth. It just happens, she says. You don't have to tell me if you don't want to. Anyway, they don't want someone who has a litter of children and grandchildren. I wouldn't trust such a stepmother either. Who can guarantee that she won't steal from the old man for her children? But you are the best. I have told them that. Were there one honest person left on earth, it would be you, Granny Lynn. What are you hesitating for? Why don't they hire someone to take care of him? Granny Lynn asks, thinking of the two sons who will soon become her stepchildren. Won't it be cheaper in the long run? Do you not know what those young girls from the nanny market are like? They are lazy and they steal money. Husbands, too, if they are hired by young couples. They leave the old people sitting in their own shit all day long. To hire such a girl, ugh, it would only push him to death quicker. Granny Lynn has to agree that, indeed, an older woman as a wife is a wise choice. Accompanied by Auntie Wang, Granny Lin goes to the interview with the two sons and their wives. An hour of questioning later, the two sons exchange a look and ask if Granny Lin needs some time to consider the marriage offer. Not having much to think about, she moves into her new home in a week. Her husband, Old Tang, is sicker than she thought. Alzheimer's, a daughter-in-law tells her at their wedding dinner. Granny Lynn nods, not knowing what the disease is, but guessing that it has something to do with the brain. She supports her husband with both hands and leads him to the table, sitting him down and wiping the drool from his chin.
Granny Lynn becomes a wife, a mother, and a grandmother. She no longer remembers in what year of her life people started to call her Granny Lynn instead of Auntie Lynn. Unmarried women, people believe, age faster. It does not matter anymore, because now she feels quite qualified for her name. Every week, one of the sons stops by and checks on Old Tongue, leaving enough money for the next week. Old Tongue is a quiet man, sitting in his chair by the window, immersed in his bottomless silence. Once in a while, he asks Granny Lynn about his wife, and, as instructed by the two sons, Granny Lynn replies that the wife is improving in the hospital and will be home in no time. But before she replies, Old Tongue seems to have forgotten his question and goes back to his meditation without any sign of having heard her. She waits for more questions that never come and eventually gives up. She turns up the volume of the television and shuffles around the house, sweeping and dusting and wiping and washing, but the time arrives earlier each day when she finishes the housework. Then she sits down on the couch and watches the daytime soap operas. Unlike the 12-inch television Granny Lynn used to own, which required her to make a trip across the room every time she needed to change channels, although she got six channels through the antenna made of two steel chopsticks, Old Tang Set is a monster with scores of channels, which all obey a small remote control. Dazed by the choices she has, and by the ease of moving from one selection to another, Granny Lynn soon finds that the machine does her no good. No matter what program she is watching, there is always the nagging worry that she is missing a more interesting one. Several days into her new life, Granny Lynn is stunned to discover that she is no longer addicted to television, as she has been for the past ten years. Does marriage have such revolutionary power that a long-established habit can be overthrown in such a short time? Granny Lynn sighs and clicks off the television. Old Tongue does not notice the silence flooding the room. She realizes then that the television is not to blame. It is because of Old Tongue's presence that she cannot focus. She picks up a magazine and peeks at Old Tongue from behind the pages. Ten minutes grows into twenty minutes, and she continues looking at him as he insists on not meeting her gaze. She has an odd suspicion that Old Tongue is not ill. He knows she is there, and he is observing her secretly. He knows that his wife of fifty-four years has left him for good and that she is his new wife, but he refuses to acknowledge her. He pretends to have lost his mind and expects her to play along as if she were a hired caretaker. But Granny Lynn decides not to concede. He is her husband, she is his wife. Their marriage certificate is secure under her pillow. If Old Tongue is testing her patience, she is ready to prove it to him. It is a tug-of-war that Granny Lynn is determined to win. She puts down the magazine and looks boldly into Old Tongue's face, trying to outstare him. Minutes grow into an hour, and all of a sudden Granny Lynn awakens in a dread that she, too, is losing her mind. 
She drags her body off the couch and stretches, feeling the small cracking of her arthritic joints. She looks down at Old Tang, and he is still a statue. Indeed, he is a sick man, she thinks, and feels the shame of having cast rootless doubt on him, a man as defenseless as a newborn baby. She walks to the kitchen quickly and comes back with a glass of milk. Milk time, she says, patting Old Tang's cheek until he starts to swallow. Three times a day, Granny Lin gives Old Tang an insulin shot. Only then does she catch a glimpse of the life left in him, the small flinch of the muscle when she pushes the needle into his arm. Sometimes a small bead of blood appears after she draws the needle out, and she wipes it away with her fingertip instead of a cotton ball, entranced by the strange sensation that his blood is seeping into her body. Several times a day, Granny Lin bathes Old Tong, in the morning and before bedtime, and whenever he wets or dirties himself. The private bathroom is what Granny Lin likes best about her marriage. All her life she has used public bathrooms, fighting with other slippery bodies for the lukewarm water drizzling from the rusty showers. Now that she has a bathroom all to herself, she never misses a chance to use it. Old Tong is the only man Granny Lin has seen fully naked. The first time she undressed him, she could not help stealing a look at the penis, nestled in a thinning bush. She wondered what it had looked like in its younger years, but right away chased the unclean thought from her mind. The frail nakedness filled her heart with a tenderness she had never experienced, and she has since tended his body with motherly hands. One evening in late February, Granny Lin leads Old Tong to the plastic chair in the middle of the bathroom. She unbuttons his pajamas and he bends his arms at her guidance, his head resting on her shoulder blade. She removes the shower head from its hook and sprays warm water on his body, putting one hand on his forehead so that the water does not get into his eyes. Granny Lin is squatting on the floor and massaging Old Tong's legs when he touches her shoulder with his palm. She looks up and he is gazing into her eyes. She gives a cry and backs away from him. Who are you? Old Tong says. Is it you, Old Tong? Granny Lin asks. Who are you? Why are you here? I live here, Granny Lin says. She sees an unnatural lucidity in Old Tang's eyes and feels her heart fall. Such a moment of clarity happens only before a nearing death. Granny Lin had seen the same light two years earlier in her father's eyes, hours before he passed away. She thinks of rushing out to call a doctor, but her feet are locked to the floor and her eyes are locked on his. I don't know you. Who are you? Granny Lin looks down at herself. She is wearing a bright yellow plastic poncho and a pair of grass green rubber boots, her outfit for bath time. I am your wife, she says. You are not my wife. My wife is Sujan. Where is Sujan? 
Sujan is no longer with us. I'm your new wife. You're lying, Otang says, and stands up. Sujan is in the hospital. No, Granny Lin says. They lied to you. Otang does not hear her. He pushes Granny Lin, and his arms are suddenly strong. Granny Lin clutches him, but he is wild with an uncontrollable force. She lets go of his hands, not knowing why she needs to fight with her husband over a dead woman. But he wrestles with the air and, two steps away, slips in a puddle of soapy water. Nobody pays any attention to Granny Lynn at the funeral. She sits in a corner and listens to the men and women who come up to talk about Old Tongue's life. An accomplished physicist and a great teacher, a loving husband, father, and grandfather. The speakers finish and shake the family members' hands, ignoring her at the end of the line. I did not kill him, Granny Lynn imagines herself telling every person there. He was dying before the fall. But she does not tell the truth to anyone, and instead admits her negligence. Nobody would believe her anyway for she alone saw the light in his eyes, the last glimmer before the eternal night, as it is called, the brief moment of lucidity before the end. Granny Lin does not get a penny from Old Tang's savings. She has looked after Old Tang for only two months and has, in many of the relatives' minds, killed him with her carelessness. She does not blame the two sons, she can think only of their loss, a thousand times more painful than her own. When one of them suggests a job in a private boarding school that is run by his friend, Granny Lynn almost weeps out of gratitude. Situated in a mountain resort in a western suburb of Beijing, Mei Mei Academy takes pride in being among the first private schools in the country. It occupies one of the few four-story buildings that were allowed to be constructed in the area. Connections, connections, the chef tells Granny Lynn the day she arrives. How else could the school have gained the permit if not for its powerful trustees? Private schools, like all private businesses, are sprouting up across the country like bamboo shoots after the first spring rain. Relatives of the Communist Party leaders are being transformed overnight into business owners, appearing on national TV as representatives of the new proletarian entrepreneurs. Granny Lynn cannot imagine a better life now that she has become a maid at the academy. Every meal is a banquet. Meat and fish are abundant. Vegetables are greener than the ones Granny Lynn remembers from her market days. Everything is produced by a small organic farm that serves the president and the premier and their families. So the chef informs Granny Lynn. Sometimes Granny Lynn feels sad at seeing so much good food go into the garbage. She begins to come late to her meals, waiting until the students finish theirs. Throughout the dining hall, untouched vegetables are left withering on the plates. Shipwrecked fish lie flat on their half-gnawed bellies. 
Granny Lynn spoons the leftovers onto her plate and dreams of having an express shuttle running between the school and the city every day, taking the unconsumed food to her old neighbors. Eating such good food without working hard is a sin. In addition to the laundry and the dorm cleaning assigned to her, Granny Lynn takes on other duties. She gets up early in the morning and opens the classroom windows to let in the fresh mountain air. She sweeps and mops the terrazzo floor. She dusts and polishes the students' desks. She makes sure everything is meticulous, even though the janitor has cleaned the classrooms the night before. Sometimes, when there is still time before the wake-up bell, she leaves the school and takes a walk in the mountains. The morning fog is damp on her skin and her hair, and birds she has never seen in the city sing in a chorus. At such moments, Granny Lynn feels overwhelmed by her good fortune. The years in the factory seem a distant dream now, and she no longer remembers what her life was like when she walked through the morning smog expelled by coal stoves and bargained at the market for vegetables puffed up by chemical fertilizers. Often Granny Lynn gathers an armful of wildflowers on her walk. Mountain orchids, pearl cherries, jade barrettes. She arranges the flowers in vases for the six classrooms, one for each grade, but such a delicacy rarely lasts beyond the first period. Boys of all ages pelt one another with the flowers. The boy whose lips touch the flowers is called a sissy. Girls in the upper grades pull the petals off and bury them in a mound in the schoolyard, their fingers ruthless and their faces shrouded with a sad seriousness. The school is growing. Every month a few new students arrive. Granny Lynn is stunned by the parents' wealth the ease with which they pay the initiation fee of 20,000 yuan and another 20,000 for the first year of tuition and room and board. In the third month of Granny Lynn's stay, the school celebrates the admission of its hundredth student with a feast. Kang, the boy who draws the lucky number, is six years old. Unlike the other students who come from the city, he has been sent from a nearby province. A few days into his stay, the teachers and the staff members have all heard his story. Kang's grandfather used to be the leader of a big people's commune in his home province, and his father has become one of the top agricultural entrepreneurs in northern China. I thought farmers liked to keep their sons at home, Granny Lin says to Mrs. Du, a dorm mother, as they search for foul-smelling socks under the mattresses. They can almost stand up and walk by themselves, is how Mrs. Dew describes the stiff socks that have been worn for too long. Not when he is the son of a disfavored wife, Mrs. Dew says. An extra is what he is. Are the parents divorced? Who knows? But the father does have another wife, or a concubine. What's the difference? The boy's mother is no longer needed in the family, and the child has to go too. The thought of the boy, who is so small and occupies almost no space in the world, yet is still in other people's way and has to be got rid of, 
saddens Granny Lynn. She starts to look for the boy in the crowd. His clothes, of the same brand names as those that the other students wear, look wrong on him. Too large, too new, too trendy. The clothes do not belong to him any more than he belongs to the school. His face and hands always seem in need of a thorough washing. But after Granny Lynn has tended to them several times, she has to agree that it is not the child's or the dorm mother's fault. In his second week, Kong starts to come to the laundry room during the afternoon activity time. Granny, what's this? Kong asks one day, while Granny Lynn is massaging some baby lotion into his cheeks. Something that will make you a city boy, Granny Lynn says. Granny, where do you live? I live here. But before you came here, where is your husband's home? Granny Lynn thinks for a moment. In the city, she says. What's the city like? My mom said she'd take me to see the city. Where is your mom? Granny Lynn asks, holding her breath and trying to make her heart beat less loudly. The boy seems not to notice. She is at home. Your father's home? No, my grandfather's home. My new mom lives in my father's home. What's your new mom like? Is she pretty? Yes. Is she good to you? Yes. Do you like her? Yes. Do you like your mom also? More than your new mom? Granny Lynn asks. She turns around to see whether anyone is walking past the laundry room in the hallway. She feels like a thief. The boy, too, looks around nervously. He then comes closer and circles his arms around Granny Lynn's neck, his mouth to her ear, his hot breath touching her earlobe. Granny, I'll tell you a secret. Don't tell anyone. I won't. My mom said she would come and get me back one day. When? She said soon. When did she say it? Before my new mom moved in. When was that? Last year. Have you seen your mom since then? No, but she said she'd come soon if I don't make my dad and my new mom angry, Kong says. Granny, do you think the guards will let her in when she comes? I'm sure they will, Granny Lynn says. The boy smells like a mixture of baby lotion, fresh laundry, and summer sweat. It reminds Granny Lynn of old tongue after his bath, the way a dear person smells good. The thought makes Granny Lynn's lips go dry, and she feels the boy's arms on her neck, hot and sticky. On Friday afternoons, the parking lot outside the school gate is full of luxury cars. Chauffeurs and nannies come, and sometimes the parents themselves show up. Teachers and dorm mothers stand inside the gate, pointing out to one another who is the daughter-in-law of a powerful figure in the government, or who has appeared in the latest hit movie. Kong is the only child who stays for the weekend. His father has paid the extra fee for weekend care and has promised to come for him at the end of the semester. Sometimes Granny Lynn wonders if the father will ever come and what will become of Kong if no one picks him up when the summer arrives. 
will he be able to stay with her at the school? Then she wonders if she herself will be allowed to stay, and, if not, where she will spend the two months before she is allowed to return in September. After the last student is picked up every weekend, the teachers and the dorm mothers leave on a shuttle bus for the city. Apart from the two guards, Granny Lynn is the only one who stays, and she has cheerfully agreed to take care of Kong. They stand side by side at the school gate and wave at the bus. Both sigh with relief once it is gone. Kong darts across the yard to the activity room, flipping through picture books as fast as he can, eager to get to the next one. Granny Lynn comes in and sits down at his side, stroking his hair and watching him laugh to himself. When he finishes all the new books, they go out and play in the yard, Granny Lynn pushing him in the swing until it is flying so high that Kong screams with excitement and fear. When the weather is nice, they take long walks in the mountains. Weekend tourists swarm into the area, but Granny Lynn and Kong are the only two people who do not worry about missing the bus or getting stuck in a traffic jam. They walk hand in hand, Kong's palm touching Granny Lynn's, both sweating. Granny Lynn tells old tales about flowers and grass. When she runs out of old stories, she makes up new ones. After dinner, Granny Lynn leads Kong to the bathroom. She waits outside with a towel in his pajamas, and he sings in the shower the song about the red dragonfly she has taught him. Always he shouts to Granny Lynn after the first two minutes, asking if he can come out now. She replies that it would be good if he could stay in the shower for another five minutes. Then the boy goes on singing, his voice pure and perfect. Granny Lynn feels a warm liquid move under her skin and in her heart. Often, without turning off the water, Kong jumps out of the stall at Granny Lynn. She pretends to be startled and screams, and he giggles and runs off before she can wrap the towel around his dripping body. At night, as he sleeps, he mumbles in his dreams, his arms and legs thrown in all four directions under the blanket. Granny Lynn tucks him in and watches him for a long time, the unfamiliar warmth swelling inside her. She wonders if this is what people call falling in love, the desire to be with someone every minute of the rest of her life so strong that sometimes she is frightened of herself. Granny Lynn is not the first person to have noticed the missing socks. The dorm mothers, for two weeks in a row, tell her that the girls are complaining that their favorite socks are disappearing in the laundry. Granny Lynn knows, then, what has happened to the socks. A few times, she has seen Kong clutching a girl's unwashed sock. He drops it into the basket when he realizes that she is watching him. The next weekend, while Kong is playing a computer game in the activity room, Granny Lynn searches his bed. She finds nothing under the mattress, where the children usually hide things. She folds back the blanket. She picks up the pillow, unzips the pillowcase, and sees five socks inside, rolled up into small bundles like newborn bunnies. Granny Lynn unrolls them, 
young girls' socks with flower patterns or cartoon animals. She thinks of putting them in her pocket, but stops at the thought of Kang groping in the pillowcase for the socks, something dear to him for reasons she does not know. She rolls the socks back up and stuffs them into the pillowcase. On Monday, Granny Lynn asks her supervisor for a half-day off and takes the bus to the city, looking for socks that have the same patterns as the missing ones. She buys several packages of girl socks in different designs. Granny Lynn becomes more careful with the laundry now. She makes sure all the girl socks are back in their bags before Kong arrives. From time to time, she scatters around socks that she has bought, all of them having been washed and dried and then rubbed across the floor. They are still the happy couple on weekends, but Granny Lynn worries as she counts the missing socks that she has put out for Kong. She wonders if she needs to talk to him and find out the reason for what he is doing. But every time she opens her mouth, she loses her resolve. On weekends, as they sit in the shadow of the wisteria, Granny Lynn wonders if this is the love she missed in her younger years, hand in hand with a dear boy, not asking him to tell her the secret she is not allowed to know. The weather gets hot, and the dorm mothers put mosquito nets over the students' beds. The first night, a boy in the bed next to Kong's gets up after the dorm mother leaves. With a small flashlight in his hand, he sticks his head inside Kong's mosquito net and shrieks in a low voice, letting the flashlight shine in Kong's eyes. Kong does not cry, as the boy hoped, but the boy is surprised and pleased to find Kong stroking his own cheeks with both his hands in floral socks. Dorm mothers are called. Seven more socks are discovered, and by the end of the next day, everyone in the school knows about the sick boy who steals girls' socks and does strange things with them. Granny Lynn watches the kids chase Kong around the schoolyard, calling him sicko, psycho, porn boy, her heart wrenching as if it were a piece of rag in the washing machine. Kong is no longer allowed to visit the laundry room. She counts the days to the weekend and is afraid that she will break down before the three days pass. On Friday afternoon, as they stand in front of the school gate, Granny Lin has to raise Kong's hand and wave for him. When the shuttle bus is gone, Granny Lin turns to Kong, who is kicking a pebble in front of him. Kong, come to Granny's room for a moment, Granny Lin says. No, I don't want to, Kong says, pulling free of Granny Lin's hand. What do you want to do? Let's take a walk. I don't want to take a walk. How about reading some books? A new box of books came in yesterday. I don't want to read. Let's get on the swing. I don't want to do anything, Kong says, pushing Granny Lin's hand off his shoulder. Granny Lin's tears swell out of her eyes. She looks down at the top of Kong's head. To love someone is to want to please him, even when one is not able to. 
Think of something you want to do and we'll do it together. Think of something you want and Granny will get it for you. You know Granny loves you. I want to go home. I want to see my mom, Kong says. Granny, do you think we can catch the train and go home for two days? Granny Lynn looks down at Kong's upturned face, seeing the small hope grow bigger in his eyes. Kong grabs her hand. Granny, just two days. Nobody will know. Granny Lynn sighs. Forgive me, Kong, but Granny cannot do this for you. But why? You said you'd do anything. Anything that we can do here, in the school, in the mountains. Kong, good boy, we cannot leave the school. It takes a minute for Kong to burst into tears. Granny Lynn tries to quiet him and pull him into her arms. Kong pushes her away, and his eyes, filled with the cold anger that Granny Lynn once saw in old Tong's eyes, chill her. Kong runs across the schoolyard. Granny Lynn runs after him, but she has to stop and catch her breath after a few steps. Her old body is failing her young heart. Granny Lynn thought that Kong would be crying in his bed, but the boy is not there. She calls out his name as she walks through the building, checking each unlocked door, the activity room, the music room, the dining hall. She looks under tables and behind curtains, and her heart sinks deeper each time her hope proves unfounded. For an hour, Granny Lynn searches, until it occurs to her that the boy may have left the building and even the school. Paralyzed by the thought and imagining all kinds of disasters, she calls the two guards who are playing poker in the small room by the school gate. Neither wants to admit the possibility that the boy has squeezed through the gate, both insisting that he must be hiding somewhere in the building. More searches are carried out by the three of them. The searches yield nothing, and they each start to panic with different worries. The police are called. The school supervisor is called. The dorm mothers are called. The guards make phone calls to whomever they can think of. Granny Lynn watches one of the young men punch the number with a shaking hand and wonders why is he so nervous. The guards are losing only a peaceful weekend. They will lose at most a month of salary, as both are relatives of the trustees. Boys disappear every day. What would they remember of Kong a year from now, even if they never found him? Granny Lynn begins to cry. But Kong shows up by himself, in the middle of the turmoil, unharmed, hungry, and sleepy. He must have played hide-and-seek with Granny Lynn while she was looking for him. Or did he want to punish her for disappointing him? Granny Lynn does not know. All she knows is what he told the school supervisor, that he fell asleep under the piano. Granny Lynn remembers looking under the piano, but nobody trusts an old woman's memory. Besides, what's the difference, even if she is telling the truth? She has proved incapable. More stories are remembered, of her eating the students' rations, of her carelessness with the laundry, 
On the evening of the day the children return, Granny Lynn is asked to leave. Her things are packed and placed at the gate, a duffel bag, not heavy even for an old woman. The happiness of love is a shooting meteor. The pain of love is the darkness following. A girl is singing to herself in a clear voice as she walks past Granny Lynn down the street. She tries to catch up with the girl, but the girl moves too fast, and so does the song. Granny Lynn puts the duffel bag on the ground and catches her breath, still hanging on to her stainless steel lunch pail with her other hand. All the people on the street seem to know where their legs are taking them. She wonders when she stopped being one of them. Someone runs past Granny Lynn and pushes her hard on the back. She stumbles and catches a glimpse of a hand before falling down. A man in a black shirt runs into the crowd with her duffel bag. A woman stops and asks, Are you all right, Granny? Granny Lynn nods, struggling to recover from the fall. The woman shakes her head and says aloud to the passers-by, what a world! Someone just robbed an old granny. Few people respond. The woman shakes her head again and moves on. Granny Lynn sits on the street and hugs the lunch pail to herself. Hungry as people are, it is strange that nobody ever thinks of robbing an old woman of her lunch. That's why she has never lost anything important. The 3,000 yuan of dismissal compensation is safe in the lunch pail, as are several unopened packages of girls' socks, colorful with floral patterns, souvenirs of her short love story. That was Sarah Swenyan Bynum reading Extra by Ian Lee. The story was published in The New Yorker in December of 2003 and included in Lee's collection, A Thousand Years of Good Prayers, in 2005. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Sarah, this, the story opens with a kind of joke when, when Granny Lynn's neighbor spouts what sounds like a sort of ancient Chinese aphorism. There's always right. a road when you get into the mountain. And then right away, Granny Lynn reveals that it's a, it's a Toyota advertising slogan. <laughs> what do you think that, that, that Yi Yun is trying to, to set up there? Well, I love that moment because it does give us permission as readers to laugh at points throughout this story mm -hmm. 
And it establishes this delicate sense of humor that works hand in hand with also the very delicate use of irony that is present throughout the story. And the combination of the humor and the irony and the pathos is just so masterfully handled in this piece. And I love how opening up with that joke about the Toyota line lets us know right away that this is going to be a story where there are moments of humor and absurdity. And similarly, how in that very first or in the very second paragraph, we get a little bit of that irony there. Of course, it does not provide such information for these (laughs) facts are simply not true. I love how just in those first few paragraphs, she's teaching us about how to read the story that's to come. And that even as we follow a character who is experiencing one loss after another, that there's also going to be room as we experience these losses with her to to smile at points and to chuckle at points. Mm-hmm. Also, in a way, does it sets up this, what you were saying earlier, this, this sense of China in transition, in economic transition, where you think right, you're, you're right. getting this kind of classical Chinese idiom. And in fact, what you're getting is an advertising slogan and and something that shows the reach of of advertising. Yeah, absolutely. And this great juxtaposition of here we have the official state-issued certificate and then the language of that, the sort of officialese of that language, then being juxtaposed with the TV, you know, jingle language and that, you know, Japanese corporations have even by this point, really establish themselves within mm-hmm. the consciousnesses of these characters. I love how like it 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 slips out involuntarily, like that it's already <laughs> become sort of so ingrained in her that she can't help but say the second half of this jingle. Right. I love how she's sort of layering these different registers of language. And she's drawing our attention to how internal reorganization is what is the state-sanctioned term as opposed to bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And the irony is that, you know, Granny Lynn goes from this this bankrupt state-run factory to a sort of spanking new private school, one of many that have suddenly sprung up. And, and so we really see this sort of change happening before our eyes. Yeah, but these details are woven in so subtly throughout the story that it's one of the sort of great pleasures is to almost become conscious of them after the fact. Ian told me that Stuart Dybeck read the story when he was visiting the Iowa Writers' Workshop when she was a student, and he made a comment to the class about how she hadn't bothered with backstories now, according to her, at the time, she barely knew what a backstory was. Yeah. But, but do you think that sense of, of just being dropped into Granny Lynn's life at this moment in, in her 52nd year with no knowledge of her past helps helps us read the story or does it hinder it? I feel the absence of backstory emphasizes the sense of her life beginning now mm-hmm. that in so many ways... She is an innocent. There's that moment where she's observing her husband's aging body, and she's never seen 
a naked man before. Mm -hmm. And then there's that other wonderful line when she's trying to run after the little boy and can't keep up and talks uh, that wonderful sentence of her old body is failing her young heart. Which for anyone, you know, like me, and I'm in my 40s, I think at 51 is my body. (laughs) so old, I can't. Body will fail me. Um, it's funny. It tell, also tells you something about about the difficulty of life. Yeah, yeah. That has taken these the physical toll of doing this kind of manual labor day in and day out. And yet, here she is, having been released from the garment factory, and in a sense, she's like a newborn in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and and when she talks about those days and, you know, the decades that she spent there having been just like a dream now. And it's as if she's awakening to the world and she's awakening to love for the first time. So in some senses, that absence of backstory really adds to our our impression that, that Granny Lynn is in, in some ways quite newborn. I think it also contributes to this idea of her as an as an extra. You know, we never know much about the extras um, yeah. in any story. You know, so it's Kang who's referred to as an extra because his, his father doesn't want him. But yeah. but she's been sort of unnecessary to anyone other than herself until this this part of her story begins. Yeah, that there's a sense of her, you know, being one of the. Uh, people who go unnoticed, who are unremarkable. You know, as Flaubert wrote about Felicité in A Simple Heart, he said, I just want this to be a record of an obscure life. Mm -hmm. This story is choosing to illuminate a previously obscure life. And it almost as if what happened before sort of the light of the story's attention fell on Granny Lynn, it's almost as if what happens before doesn't matter. Right. That's that's also extra. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why do you think that Granny Lynn is, is so curious about Kang and his situation with his mother and his stepmother? She has to sort of sneak around asking questions. I was wondering about that, too. And one of the things I was struck by is how, with just so effortlessly, the story moves between summary and scene. And we almost don't even register these shifts between summary and scene because the routines of her life and and the habits that she creates in each of these new situations that she finds herself in, they're all summarized for us, but the summary is rendered as as vividly and as palpably as a scene would be. Mm-hmm. So cleaning the apartment and watching television, washing old Tong's body, uh, these all have the vividness as if we're seeing it for the first time, yet we know this is something that's happening repeatedly and habitually. Mm-hmm. And similarly, the, the rituals that she creates as she's cleaning the dorms at the, at the fancy boarding school. And so this, the scenes, the moments where we do have characters speaking to each other, have this different sort of intensity to them coming as they do in these wonderful passages of her daily life. So when the story 
gives us these conversations, they take on a different charge to them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, both that conversation she has with old Tong in the shower when he awakens to Mm -hmm. his situation. And then also that very touching scene and complicated scene when she's in the laundry room and gently probing as she's trying to understand Kong's inner life. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's that line about how, how, how she feels like a thief. What is, what is she stealing? Emotions. You're right. I think, I think it's that sort of um, emotional intimacy or that sort of access to someone's interior life that she is trying to access and trying to experience and feels maybe she doesn't quite have a right to do so. Mm-hmm. And also the other thing I was so struck by in, in both of those scenes is how the physical intimacy, you know, the act of washing someone else's body, the act of supporting someone else's body becomes the prelude for this emotional vulnerability that happens. Mm-hmm. And similarly, when she's questioning Kong about his mother and about how he feels about his new mother, that all begins as she's rubbing lotion into, you know, so right. that, that it's almost as if the kind of physical touch makes possible this other kind of intimacy that follows, but that she still feels you know, very hesitant about trying to claim any of that sort of emotional or personal intimacy. You know, she she is so private about her own life when, when Auntie Wong is saying, why didn't you ever get married? Uh, <laughs> yeah, she's, she's, she's evasive. We get the sense of, of, of her protecting her own privacy, and I wonder if that's why she feels... Like she's a thief when she is attempting to break into this little boy's privacy. It's it's just fascinating to me. I mean, I think that in general, the relationship with both of these charges of hers, you know, first she's taking care of this kind of childlike old man who she thinks of maternally in a way. She's sort of tender and, and, and maternal with him. Yeah. And then she's taking care of this actual child. And suddenly she wonders if she's falling in love. And if what she feels for Kong is like, is the love that she missed out on as a young woman. So in a way, she seems to get these emotions backward. Not that I would expect her to fall in love with with old Tang in his his state. (laughs) But why do you think she suspects her feelings for the six-year-old of being romantic love? I, I read it in some ways as sort of yet another expression of her innocence that she has no framework to understand this upwelling of, of emotion that he has provoked in her, mm-hmm. that having, you know, lived a life that the sense that we get has been quite blinkered in, in, in certain ways, that there isn't a sort of breadth of experience in which to place the emotion that she's experiencing for the first time. You know, she has just this enormous capacity to love. And 
one of the things that's touching about her character is how, you know, there are these little gestures of of consideration or of of when even when when she's been sort of cut out of the inheritance, her first impulse is to think that the son's pain must be a thousand times greater than hers. Mm-hmm. You know, her first impulse is to empathize with the sons who have basically reneged on the contract yeah. that <laughs> they entered into. And again, you know, where she's in this bountiful environment of the school, she fantasizes about being able to share some of that abundance with her old neighbors. So there just seems to be this real generosity of spirit about Granny Lynn that hasn't been able to find a way to express itself. It's such an irony that she's she takes the leftovers from the, the children's plates so that this food won't go to waste, and then at the end she's sort of accused of stealing from them. I know, I know. <laughs> that is that's such an, you know, injustice in this story. And But, you know, one of the things that I think the story delineate so subtly is is how she never attempts to defend herself in any of these situations where she is wrongly accused, whether that's of negligence in Old Tong's death or whether that's of stealing the children's food at the at the boarding school. You know, there isn't there isn't any effort to speak up for herself or to she is already resigned to the judgment that she anticipates she'll mm-hmm. she'll be met with. That was striking to me too, because of course you know my impulse is one must speak <laughs> up, but then you know it, it was such a window into the fact that this is a character who has has not been inculcated with this idea of asserting, you know, one's rights. And this is a character for whom there's a certain kind of fatalism in how she greets these turn of events. There's a sense that she has been an extra all her life, that she's never really been needed. It almost becomes difficult to defend yourself in that situation. I think one of the things that the story asks maybe is, is that sort of invisibility necessarily a bad thing but I also I also think that in some ways it's part of her innocence and her grace in the story that she accepts these judgments without protest yeah she she keeps her own view of her actions clear in her mind one of the one of the really um poignant things for me in the story is that although she's finally needed by old tongue and kung that you know they 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 both need her and they inspire these loving feelings in her for that reason but she's still an extra even with them she's just a stand-in for the woman that they actually want Want. which is you know old tongue's wife and and kung's mother mother yeah and she's she's sort of playing those roles without actually inhabiting them and i wonder if if this is also part of this question of the kind of perhaps fatalism or the resignation that we see in her is that she accepts what is given and even though their need is given in this sort of contingent way, 
is more than what she's ever experienced before and the sort of the rush of feeling that she describes when spending the weekends with I mean it, it yeah. those that passage it's all summary but it's such beautifully rendered summary of the rhythm of their days together mm-hmm. and what a gift that is to her and how sort of idyllic that time is that they spend and how they there's this sense of the school and the mountains sort of becoming their own realm that mm-hmm. that everybody else are kind of interlopers or visitors and and yet the two of them sort of have this private realm together Um, you know it is kind of like a honeymoon (laughs) yeah yeah and I'm enchanted by it as I read it and and I certainly feel oh this is this isn't just enough this is so abundant so even though as you said that she is sort of a substitute here as we're experiencing it with her it feels more than enough it feels like such a gift and the sadness is that both of these stories end in the same way, you know, both Old Tang and Kang demand the woman that they really want, you know. He asks the, the old man asks for his wife and the boy asks her to take him to see his mother. And things go very wrong when she can't satisfy that that demand. But as sad as it is that they both end in this way, the story doesn't end on a sad note. Well, no, but that that's one of the strangest things about the story is that it, she's been robbed. She's sitting on the side of the, you know, basically sitting on the curb while she has is her lunch pail. Right. And the crowds and, are like, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the crowds are her. surging around with her totally indifferent to <laughs> what's just happened. And um, yet it's it's perhaps a happy ending. <laughs> you know, yes, how, does, how does she... Um, you know, managed to stay such an optimist. And that's one of the aspects of the story that just delights me, is that there's this resilience and this resourcefulness at the end. You know, here she's been (laughs) mugged, and yet she's, you know, quite pleased that in some ways she's sort of outwitted. <laughs> outwitted the mugger by, by the putting her money in her lunch pail. Lunch pail. And, and it's also like such a wonderful circling back to that very first paragraph where she's carrying, we learn that she's carrying this official certificate in her lunch pail. The satisfaction of seeing that same object return at the very conclusion of the story is wonderful, but then there's also this sort of oddly buoyant note that the that the story ends on. That's that makes me hopeful that that this will not be the only love story for Granny Lynn. <laughs> that she will find some new object for her devotion, and that it will give her the same pleasure that this idol that she had with the little boy gave her but again just just as that wonderful section of the story where we see the boy and granny lynn spend this time together just just the way that that felt like a gift i felt like this ending was an unexpected gift because certainly both stories do end both of her sort of intimacies and in a way that feels quite unfair to her. But then the story doesn't end there. And I was grateful as a reader that there was this 
lilt upwards at the end mm-hmm. of the story, mm-hmm. you know, suggesting that her fate is not going to be just one of loss and invisibility. Right. Well, she says that sort of remarkable thing at the end that she's she's never or she thinks she's never lost anything important. And to us as readers, it seems as though she's she's perhaps lost everything important. But, you know, on the other hand, maybe she didn't have anything of importance to lose. And what she's walking away from the school with is actually a net gain. Yeah, I read it that way. And then having those socks that, of course, now the socks always make me think of newborn bunnies, even when I (laughs) (laughs) now open my daughter's drawer and see all the nestled socks. That's all I can think about is (laughs) newborn bunnies. It does feel as if she has something, she's taken away something important and taken away something alive somehow from this interlude at the school. You have a sense that Yun Lee has, in a way, given a gift to Granny because, you know, she's turned her from an extra into, into a heroine and... She at the at the end, everyone's sort of surging past her and not looking at Granny, but but we're looking at her, and suddenly the readers, all these readers' eyes are on her. And she had said something um, in an interview that that seemed to apply to to this well, so many of her stories. But she, she said, "I would say my stories are mostly about people who really are not at the center, small people who don't have a lot of money or power." But they're serious people. They live seriously, and I think I write about them seriously. And again, I love that Granny, who has been extra, has now sort of become quite essential, and that there is that seriousness with which her life is considered. But again, uh, leavened by this gentle humor and gentle irony, and that the pathos of her life is is always balanced by that image of her with her yellow rain poncho and her green rain boots <laughs> <laughs> and her lunch pail. It's and like her lunch somehow pail. Like, like Dorothy, you know, skipping down the yellow brick road. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's there's something so touchingly innocent about her and guileless about her. But at the same time, there is this just enormous capacity to be devoted. And there's this faith in the fact that even at her, what's considered her old age, at her advanced age, that she too can have a love story. Yeah. Well, I think that's a that's a good note to leave her on. <laughs> Send her off to the, to the next love story. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, Deborah. This was such a treat. Yian Lee is the author of four books of fiction, including the story collection A Thousand Years of Good Prayers, which won the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award, and the novel Kinder Than Solitude, which was published in 2014. She was named a MacArthur Foundation Fellow in 2010. Sarah Swenyan Bynum, who's the author of two novels, has been publishing stories in The New Yorker since 2008. In 2010, she and Yi and Lee were included in the magazine's 20 Under 40 Fiction Writers to Watch. You can download more than 120 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, including one in which Yi and Lee reads a story by Patricia Highsmith, or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. 
You can find The Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.